This is episode number 161 of the God Stuff Podcast, where we go bigger, better, and deeper. A bigger impact for Christ in the gospel, a bigger ministry, hopefully, a better understanding of scripture, interpreting it, applying it in a deeper walk with God. And today we're going better. And I want to share a message I preached in May of 2023. And in this message, we talk about the Two little parables Jesus gave, one about the treasure hidden in the field and the other about the pearl of great price. And then a little bit more, something surprising about uh, John's identity. And I think really beautiful and really cool. So this is one of those episodes where, yes, I'm broadcasting a message. We're going to do a lot as we enter the summer season here at the God Stuff Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. As always, head over to Veritas school.life if you really want to go deeper and really understand how to get these kinds of insights from the word. So without further ado, let's get into the treasure and the pearl. Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast with Bill Giovanetti, the home of grace-powered living, because grace isn't an app. It's an operating system. Here's Bill. So good to see you. Thank you for joining us and worshiping with us here at Pathway. Happy Mother's Day to all our moms here. Welcome. Let's give it up for all our moms. We appreciate you. We love you. Thank you for being you. I uh, have a few snippets of wisdom for mom. We'll get to that in a minute. Let me, let me uh, ask you to turn in your Bible to Matthew and chapter 13. So Matthew is a little bit center right in your Bible. So Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 and then verse 44 which we'll get to in a minute. But in honor of Mother's Day, I thought it would be good to share some, some great wisdom about and for moms from a great American poet. His name, if you haven't heard of him, you should check out Ogden Nash. Anybody hear of Ogden Nash? A couple of you, okay. These are the literary types among us. Some great wisdom from the American poet Ogden Nash. Here we go. Children aren't happy with nothing to ignore, and that's what mothers were created for. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah? No, that's how you feel half the time, right? All right. He also wrote, A family is a unit composed not only of children, but of men, women, an occasional animal, and the common cold. <laughs> right? Every family has that. And then one more, and this one is about giving birth, and let's just say the discomforts of giving birth. But children, hark, your mother would rather, when you arrived, have been your father. <laughs> okay, we do honor mothers today, uh, and however you are a mother, physically, spiritually, if you have the heart of a mom, you are what makes this world bearable. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your labor of love. Thank you for your way of incarnating grace. Thank you for being an unsung hero in our lives. We do sing your praises today. And so we bless you. We thank you. And we do have a little treat for you at the end of our service today. Being a mom is tough work. Sometimes it's discouraging. Sometimes it's downright depressing. So that is why my message today is good news. I have good news for you today and all good news. And I am hoping that God will continue to do a special work that he has been doing here in our church family, really kicking it into high gear back at Good Friday and then Easter and then the weeks after that. 
God's been surprising us week after week. And I'm hoping that he'll surprise you today that whatever it is that brought you to church today, brought you here to Pathway Church today, your goals, your motivation for being here, I hope that God fulfills that and then surprises you by fulfilling something way, way more than that. So here's our key scripture. We'll actually be mashing up a few places in the Bible, but let's start here. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We have two parables that are really short parables put together here, and I kind of want to deal with them together. Uh, the first parable is called the treasure hidden in the field. The second is called the pearl of great price. Jesus said that a man found the treasure, a merchant found the pearl, and in each case, they went and they sold everything to buy the fields, to buy the pearl. So that's the parable. And I grew up in the church, many of you know that, and I can tell you that for all of the years that I grew up in church, these parables were taught to me and explained to me in a certain way that really discouraged me and messed with my mind. So that explanation went like this. Now, I'm going to tell you the way I was taught this. Don't say amen, because I'm going to blow it up, all right? So <laughs> just hold those amens. That'll be a very misplaced amen. Okay, so... The way this is taught is, here you are, you're searching, and you find this treasure in Jesus, and you find this treasure in the gospel, and, or you find this pearl, this precious thing, this pearl of great price, when you find about Jesus, and you find about the gospel, and if you want it, if you want the treasure, if you want the pearl, God calls you to do something really hard and really costly, God calls you to Give up everything. He calls you to surrender everything, to sacrifice everything, to pay any price and every price. As it says in the parable, they sold all that they had. If you want to receive Jesus in his salvation, that's what you have to do. Okay, so that's how I was taught it. That's how I heard it. And that's actually the standard interpretation of these parables. If you go look it up in any resource, that's what it will say. I will tell you that this interpretation of these parables messed with me. It made my Christianity, and I was in one church from the time I was born till the time I was in 20, and I only left that church to go take a job as a youth pastor. But that teaching made my Christianity heavy. It made my Christianity hard. It made faith laborious. It made God demanding. It made church depressing. All of that. When you put it all together, it made me feel very guilty, very ashamed all the time. I was a really sincere kid growing up, and all the way through my teen years and into my 20s, I really wanted to please the Lord. But I knew that in my heart, I wasn't selling all my goods. I wasn't surrendering everything. There were corners of my heart that I just didn't want to do that. I wasn't ready for that. This way of interpreting these parables takes the treasure of heaven and the pearl of great price and places them on a shelf so high they felt forever out of reach to someone like me, to someone spiritually all over the map, to someone messed up, to a spiritual, dirty, confused, spiritual loser like me. I mean, that's how I felt. That's how I felt growing up in church. To me, Christianity became the message of my effort and surrender and self-sacrifice, paying any price. 
and all of that. And when you think about it, that message is the opposite of good news, right? That's the opposite of the gospel. It's the anti-gospel. It's no gospel at all. Can any of you relate to this? Okay, two of you. That's awesome. I'll work with that. I mean, I've heard these interpretations so long and so often, they were really hammered into my brain. And I went into a dark place, but I was a Christian, and actively so, and wanted to please the Lord, but it wasn't working for me. And God had to do a lot of work to rewire my mental circuits when I began to come out of this way of understanding Christianity and the Christian faith. And Part of that work that God did was from another set of verses in the Bible, but we're going to just look at one right now, John 13, 23, which will be to the right, a couple of books. It says, now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. The scene of this verse, it's the Last Supper, the special meal Jesus ate just before he died. He had this meal with his disciples. And back in those days, when you ate a meal, you didn't sit on chairs at a table. You're laying on the on cushions on the floor, and basically picture like a round table, but way low, just a couple of inches off the ground, and then cushions set all around it, and then people laying with their head to the middle and their feet out. So the table's like the hub of a wheel, and the people are spokes coming out, the head toward the middle, and you'd be on like one elbow reaching with one hand and grabbing your food, and you'd be really packed close to each other. I mean, you could lean back and talk to this guy on this side, or this guy would lean on you and talk to each other. I mean, this is what you would call really close fellowship. This would be rough for an introvert. This would also be really, really rough for a clean freak and a germaphobe. This is not going to work for you, all right? Now, right next to Jesus is this one disciple, and he's leaning back. He's talking to Jesus. This is normal. He's, that's why it says he's leaning on Jesus' bosom. He's just basically leaning back into Jesus. He's talking to him. This normal thing. And it doesn't say his name. We do not have this disciple's name. But we have him described this way. He is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, from other places in the Bible, we can figure out that this is the disciple named John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's that John. And this is not the only time when John is described this way. For example, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing by, he said to his mother, and so on. And then you have this. Then she ran. This is Mary Magdalene after the resurrection of Jesus. She'd seen him risen. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and so on, right? I won't go through all of the verses on this, but there are five times when the Bible calls John the disciple whom Jesus loved. So I learned this. I learned this as a kid growing up in church, growing up in Sunday school, and all that. My teachers taught me this. And then they said that that was a standard I had to live up to. I had to make myself such a good Christian that it could be said of me that I am the disciple who, whom Jesus loves. I had to work hard. I had to strive to be such a good Christian that I could merit that special love from God. That was now my goal. That was my marching orders. This is the kind of believer I had to be. Which, when I heard it, that turned out to be yet another punch in the gut, spiritually, for me. I mean, who am I to feel I could ever be that special to Jesus? Who am I to be that superior to all the other Christians? Who am I to merit that special affection from God? And I just kind of gave up on it. I thought, man, that's not for me. That's for really saintly people. That's for really holy people. That's for really pure people, really, really good Christians 
that's just not for me. It's not going to happen, not in a million years. And the more I realized that I was not going to achieve that standard, the more guilty I felt and the more ashamed I felt. And as that just kept compounding, something began to happen inside of me. And it wasn't good. What began to happen inside of me was that guilt, shame became so common for me that they actually became normal. They actually became a new normal for me. It was normal for a Christian to live with constant guilt and shame. Guilt and shame defined my Christian life. They defined my normal. That's how it was. You go to church, you get beat up, you do a little emotional penance, you feel like a worm. Normal. I mean, I remember as a teenager talking about this with my friends. Normal. And in fact, the more beat up you got at church, the better the sermon was. Man, preacher was on fire today. Really hated myself. It was awesome. Normal. I mean, that's the plan, right? I mean, in my mind, God loved me, but he certainly didn't treasure me. God loved me, but he, I don't think he liked me. Yeah, I could say, I had to say God loved me, but I was nothing special and I never would be. And when I look back on all that, I realize the word I would put on that today is a stronghold. That was one of my strongholds, guilt, condemnation, shame, inadequacy, never enough for God. And, you know, it wasn't like the devil was attacking me with this. It was the church. It was my church that was attacking me with this, pounding me over and over again with the impossibly high demands of a God who is impossible to please. And because of this, um, I could not embrace myself. I could not accept myself. I could not see myself as a believer, a, a saint, a child of God, who is actually beloved. And that's one of the markers of a stronghold, as I said a couple of weeks ago. They define your normal and they attack your identity. I mean, I had this deeply embedded belief that attacked my view of myself, and this is what happens. You attack, it attacks your view of yourself. This is a way of thinking that drives a wedge between you and God, between you and life, between you and hope. You end up redefining yourself as something unlovable, and you redefine God as some kind of a harsh taskmaster or as a cosmic bully raining impossible demands on our heads. And then you make all of this normal, and that's what Christians do. And you have to live with it, and you have to accept it, even as you hate it. Honestly, I look back on my life. Honestly, I don't know why I stayed in church. I don't know why I bothered. I don't know why I stuck it out. I had friends that didn't stick it out. I, I did. I just say, that's just grace. But God was working, and God was kind of working in and around and through the stuff I was learning that was wrong that I had to unlearn. And part of that turnaround for me came from one glorious Bible verse. It's Romans 8.1. It's actually, if you ask me, what's your favorite Bible verse? Romans 8.1, which says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the end of the verse, by the way. If your Bible has more words, they don't belong there. Yeah, if you look at the modern translations, they stop right here. The King James and the New King James don't. And they're wrong. Long story, we could talk. All right. You know how you can hear a thing and not really register what you heard? Like every mother knows this. I mean, your kids are going, meme, 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 and you're doing something else. You go, what? You're hearing, but it's not registering. I heard Romans 8 1 100,000 times, but it never registered. It never registered, I think, because my stronghold of guilt canceled it out. You can't see the obvious when you have a stronghold. My guilt and shame made me numb and dumb to grace. 
I mean, look at this verse, Romans 8.1. It says, no condemnation. Those two words put together, no condemnation, that's revolutionary. There's nothing like this. Search all the religions of all the world. There's nothing like this. No condemnation. That's an atomic bomb in the world of religious thought. You'll never find anything like this anywhere. Romans 8.1 is truly amazing. But there I was, you know, going up in church, hearing these majestic words over and over, but never really letting them in, never really having those truths settled in my heart and, and break this stronghold. But one day, this verse did register, and when it did, it blew up my stronghold of guilt and shame and condemnation into a million little pieces. Some of you have heard me tell the story. I'm not going to repeat it. But I realized for the first time, no condemnation meant none. No condemnation, no judgment, no guilt, no shame, no punishment, no self-punishment, no self-sacrifice, no penance, no nothing. The condemnation is done. No condemnation. Amen? That's what it means. And the thing that actually made it register for me was when I was reading a teaching that connected this verse, Romans 8, 1, with teaching on the death of Jesus on the cross, when those two things came together, that catalyzed this explosion. I mean, do you see the word therefore? There is therefore, now no condemnation, therefore. This is Romans 8, 1. Therefore means all the stuff in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, therefore. And all that stuff in those chapters is Jesus Christ did on the cross everything required to eliminate all condemnation. Therefore, gathers up into one gigantic wrecking ball everything that Jesus did to pay for all my sins, to erase all of God's judgment against me, and then it slams that wrecking ball into my guilt and shame once for all and forever. That's what therefore means. That's what Jesus did. And what that told me was God does not frown when he looks at me. God never shakes his head in disappointment when he thinks of me. He loves me just as much as he loves Jesus. Right now, today, when I die and stand before him, before I get into heaven, he won't love me any more than he loves me right now because his love right now is already perfect into the maximum. Now, let's go back for a second to that idea of John being the disciple whom Jesus loved. I said there are five places in the Bible that said that. I'm just going to put them on the screen. We're not going to go through all of them. But just take a look at that list of Bible verses there. I've thought of this for years, right? And then something jumped out at me. Something here jumped out at me. I mean, when you look at what these verses all say in common, I mean, they all say John, that without naming him, he's the, his nickname is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, look for a second and see something that all these verses have in common. For example, look at the Bible references here, right? What book do these all come from? John. Who wrote John? Who's the one who put this tag on himself? Who's the one who immortalized himself in the story of Jesus by declaring himself to be the disciple whom Jesus loved? John. Who says John's the disciple whom Jesus loved? John. Actually, the only reason John goes down in biblical history as the disciple whom Jesus loved is because John wrote the biblical history calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Are you coming here with me? He said that. He wrote that. Instead of saying, I'm a worm, I'm a nobody, God's mad at me, oh, I failed again, oh, look at all my sins, I'm a lousy person, I'm a lousy Christian. You know what he said? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, if I were Peter or Paul, I'd be annoyed. <laughs> and he was no better than any of the other disciples, really. Jesus didn't love him better than the other disciples. 
John had no greater accomplishments to point to than the other disciples. In fact, the other disciples were all martyred, not John. So they had that over him. He had no greater worthiness. He had no greater merit, no greater claim on Jesus' love than any of the other disciples. I mean, to me, this just blew my mind. Jesus holds out this offer to all of his disciples, a person who believes in Jesus, anyone who's saved. And John is the only one pretty much in history who takes him up on the offer. John nicknamed himself, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. What I'm trying to tell you today is Jesus invites you to put the same nickname on yourself. You can do the exact same thing. I had an old desk in my office, had a bumper sticker on it. I found somewhere it said, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. (laughs) I, I think that's pretty close to John's attitude here. His whole mindset was oriented this way. He had no problem saying this about himself. The nucleus of his self-perception was that he was beloved of God. The core of his self-esteem was a statement in his heart that said, I am precious to my God. Is that how you see yourself? Is that what you say about yourself? And I don't mean to believe this in some flippant, shallow, adolescent bumper sticker way. I mean to have the confidence that you are special to God, a confidence that is powerfully rooted in the character of God and in the cross of Christ and in the claims of Scripture. I mean the love of God so powerfully articulated to your own mind, by your own mind, that the devil can't lawyer you out of it no matter how hard his demons try. I mean, think about it. What do the voices in your head tell you about the love of God for you? What do you say to yourself about yourself when you do something stupid, when you do something embarrassing? What are those voices saying? When the Bible called John the disciple whom Jesus loved, that was never, 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 never meant to be a burden to me. That was never meant to set some impossible standard for me that I had to achieve and climb some ladder. No, it wasn't meant to burden me. It was meant to free me. It wasn't a demand for better performance. It was an invitation to simple faith. I can start today and call myself the disciple. What's your name? I'm Bill, the disciple whom Jesus loves. I mean, that discovery set me free. When John literally identified himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved, he wasn't setting up some exhausting ladder of achievement I had to climb. You know, that wasn't just a nickname for saintly people, holy people, pure people. It wasn't for really good Christians. It wasn't a goal to be achieved. It was a promise to be received. There was a grace to be embraced in this world full of confusion and pain. And the devil hates this. What I'm saying today, the devil hates. He's always trying to turn it on its, on its head. Because he knows that you, coming to a place where you call yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is kryptonite to all your strongholds. And when you think about what sends you into a dark place, what is the missing piece in your heart that sends you down into your dysfunction of choice, whether it's porn or drugs or alcohol or anger, into depression or cutting, into sexual sin, into apathy, despair, violence, suicidal ideation, all the other dark places pulling us down. What's the missing thing? What is it that you need at that point? What is it that you find a lack for? You're on some twisted quest to find. I submit the missing ingredient is always love. This is what I'm preaching about today, love. I'm telling you that if you you will, by faith, embrace the title as a child of God, then you are the disciple whom Jesus loves just because you're saved. I don't care how bad saved or how good saved you are. Saved. 
And embracing that reality will begin to change a whole pattern of thinking and believing. It's the beginning of wholeness and peace. Now, when you came into church today, we gave you a slip of paper and a pencil. Just for the record, this pencil is God's pencil. <laughs> and it remains God's pencil. Um, so we're going to have our ushers have some extras. You guys have some extras. Come on up to the front and work your way to the back, guys. Pull this out, because I'm going to invite you. This is for you. I'm going to invite you to write something on here. Something that can be a reminder, something you take home with you. So get out your paper, and the first thing to write, my name is blank, my name is Bill. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let's just write that on our paper. And then leave some space below, because we have a little more to add, but that's enough for now. Because what I'm hoping, what I'm praying, is that on this day, you can embrace, in a deeper, stronger, better way than ever before, the height and length and breadth and width of the love of God for you. The boundless love of God for you. So you're writing your name, and then I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we'll come back to this. Don't worry, I'm going to take it off the screen. But I'm going to put this back up in a few minutes. But I want to go back to where we started and the two parables Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven being like a treasure hidden in a field and the kingdom of heaven being like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Because he says a man found a treasure hidden in the field, he sold all that he had to get it. A merchant found the pearl of great price, sold all that he had to buy it. What I want you to see here, okay, stay with me. Here you are, you're looking for the kingdom of heaven, you're looking for God, you're looking for the secret of life, and you find the treasure, or you find the pearl, and now you have to go out and sell all that you have to obtain it. I want to take that interpretation of this, these two parables and throw it in the dumpster and give you a new way of looking at this. I want you to see here that the man who's looking for the treasure and the merchant who's looking for the pearl, that's not you. The one who's looking for the treasure and the one who's looking for the pearl is Jesus Christ. He's the one doing the seeking here. And you're not the one selling everything you have to buy the treasure. He is. You're not the one sacrificing, surrendering, paying the price to buy the pearl. Jesus is. He's the man who sold all that he has. He's the merchant who paid the ultimate price. And if the man in the parable is Jesus, then where are you? I think you can see what that means. You're the treasure. You're the treasure. You're the pearl. You're the beautiful, costly, precious, valuable pearl of great price. You are. You are. God brought you to church today to hear that you're God's treasure. You're the pearl of great price. Now, when we go through this, this is written in Greek, and we read it in English translation. There's some really cool stuff in the Greek here, and I actually think you know some of these words. For example, the word treasure. The Greek word, thesaurus. It's a gathering of things that are precious and valuable, a thesaurus, something of great worth and value. That's what you are to God. You are precious to him. You are of great worth to him. He values you more than you value yourself. You might think, oh, I've just blown it too much. I've crossed this boundary, that boundary, that boundary. I've got a rap sheet. I've done this. I've done... Stop. To God, you are a precious treasure. It says the treasure is hidden. The word in Greek there is crypto, hidden, secret. And what's he saying? Your beauty is hidden. Your value is hidden. Your true glory is hidden. This world buries you. This society doesn't appreciate you. This world doesn't want the real you to shine forth. You're hidden. And it says he sells all he has. When did Jesus sell all he had? Well, when he died on the cross, right? But it started when he came down to earth from heaven and then went to the cross and then to the grave. That was the price he paid. For what? To buy. The word is agorazo. If you've heard of agoraphobia, the agora was the marketplace, and agoraphobia is a fear of crowded places or the marketplace. Jesus went into the marketplace, the agora, where they literally sold slaves in chains, and he bought the slave, 
and you set the slave free. Now, he didn't say, I'm going to make you my slave. I'm going to pay for you, and I'm going to set you free. And it says, he didn't just buy the treasure, he bought the field the treasure was in. He bought the field. He paid for it. He took care of it. He removed you from it. He bought the dirt the treasure was buried in. What dirty thing buries you? What heartbreak? What addiction? What brokenness? What pain? What psychological burden? What suffocates your joy? What dark images fill your mind? What regrets do you carry that haunt you? What losses bring tears to your eyes? What relationships have you broken needlessly? What secrets shame you? What memories mortify you? What do you fear? What do you dread? What bitterness simmers in you and blows up into anger? What is it that submerges the real you and buries the real you under a mountain of fear or loss or suffering or debt or bitterness? Jesus found you as a precious treasure buried in the dirt. And you are of such great value to him that he not only bought you, he bought the dirt too. And a price was a cost beyond words. And all of this so that you can say the most beautiful words ever said by a human soul, Jesus loves me, this I know. And there's something really awesome too in the pearl side of the uh, parables here. The merchant is seeking beautiful pearls. And in other words, you're the beautiful pearl and Jesus is out seeking for you. That's why he came from heaven to earth for you. I've said many times, I love theology, I love doctrine, I love the deep stuff of the, deep stuff of the Bible. We need meat. We have too much milk in the church. We really need to go deep. I love theology. I've also said many times that the purpose of good theology is to heal broken psychology. It straightens out your heart. It heals your heart. It's a truth that sets you free. And the devil hates this. The devil clouds your mind with all these horrible thoughts. Oh, yeah, Bill, you're saved, but Jesus doesn't like you much. You're saved, but look, you might have lost it. You're saved, but God doesn't like what you're doing and all this and that's how I felt. And I saw God in a horrible way. And I was saved, but I thought I was barely saved. I was going to heaven, but I thought barely God was grudgingly going to let me in. And I was a big annoyance to my heavenly father. That's how I saw it. You know what I am now? I'm a beautiful pearl. And Jesus never stopped seeking for me. And he never stopped seeking for you. When you backslide, he still seeks you. When you fall off the wagon, he still seeks you. When you lose it and go off on your parents or go off on your kids, when you cross a moral boundary, when you fail again and again and then again, when everything you've built up falls apart, when you blow up your marriage and it's your own dumb fault, when the devil whispers, God isn't for you, God has let you down, Jesus doesn't want you, look what a mess you are, even then Jesus still seeks you because you are the pearl of great price and he loves you. He's looking for you and he wants you. And the greatest dysfunction is feeling unloved. This is the mother of all dysfunctions. It is the mother of all addictions. It's why people are in prison if you ask them. So here comes Jesus saying, I'm seeking beautiful pearls, and I'm seeking a treasure. And look, I found you, and I love you. He shed his blood on the cross and pays the ultimate price for you to say you are beautiful. You are the pearl of great price, a beautiful pearl of great price. And I'm here to tell you that today, and I'm here to tell you today that you are by name the disciple whom Jesus loves. And the pain that you carry and whatever traps you've fallen into and all the crazy stuff in your head can be broken apart if you'll keep your eyes on the love of God. So let's take out our paper. I had two more lines. We're going to land this ship here. Let's add the line, I am God's treasure. And then let's add, and his beautiful pearl of great price. And his beautiful pearl of great price. And the reason I'm asking you to write this is to carry this slip of paper with you. Maybe take a picture of it, put it on your phone. Put it where you'll see it. Read it out loud for the next week. Every morning, every night, read it out loud. 
There's a powerful image of the love of God, and with this I'm going to wrap it up. When the prophets of old wanted to come up with a, a word picture of the love of God, they thought of the most powerful human love imaginable. And they wanted to paint a picture of how much God loves us. They picked up most strong, unbreakable human love you can imagine, and then said, God's love is greater even than that. And here's what that looks like from the prophet Isaiah. This is for Mother's Day. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Remember, the ultimate love right here, the love of a mother for her child. Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget. The strongest imaginable human love can break before God's love will break. Yet, God says, I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. What do you see on the palms of Jesus' hands, nail prints? That's not ink you can erase. And God has inscribed you on the palms of his hands because he loves you to that degree. This is your God. This is your Savior. You are the one he loves. Amen? Amen. Let us bow in prayer. I'm going to ask you to please remain seated after our prayer so I can give you a few bits of information. Lord God, I pray for each person in our church today to step into a new level of faith in the magnitude and the permanence and the blessing of your love. Lord, wherever the devil is confusing us, wherever the guilt and shame has us done, wherever the condemnation feels so great, wherever we're afraid to even look toward you because we think you're going to hurl down fire bolts, lightning bolts, drive all that away, Lord. Just let us bask in your amazing love, the length and depth and width and height of the love of God, which passes understanding. Let that be our portion, I pray. And I pray for every mom represented here. I pray your blessing on our moms. I pray joy. I pray happiness. I pray abundance. I pray health. I pray prosperity and I pray peace for every mom here. Lord, where there are broken relationships, mend them. Where there is difficulty and, and sorrow today, just bring healing and wholeness and comfort. We give all our moms to you and ask you to work in their lives in special ways. Lord, for those who don't know Jesus as Savior, keep on drawing, keep on tugging, keep on breaking down the misconceptions and draw them to you and the love of God in this beautiful thing called salvation. We pray in Jesus' precious name, and all God's people can say, Amen. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at GodStuff.tv.